Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Mimic is the movie that we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, give me your review of Mimic. Click, 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 click. I really wish I had thought to break out spoons. I would have actually done this with spoons until if I. If only we prepared. If I thought about it beforehand. Yeah. It was, you know, this was a horror film, and I. I felt a little bit predisposed to an opinion because Zach, uh, we were playing games with him the other day and he had given it a not, uh, not a much of a review. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting less. And this definitely yeah. turned out to be, this was a serviceable horror, horror movie, I thought. Yeah, I was expecting less as well because I definitely got that, uh, got that review like through the grapevine. Like this is supposed to be, his worst movie and like all this stuff. I found it very, very watchable. Um, you know, right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 61%. That's average rating 6.5 out of 10. And that's basically probably what I would give this movie. That's definitely a hell of a lot better than Batman versus Superman. <laughs> I know. Batman versus Superman is currently sitting at 29%. And that's prob. it's a little bit lower than where that one should be, but it's not. Yeah far off it sends the right message mimics uh audience score is 37 percent. so i noticed that it's the reverse which is yeah not common for i would expect horror movies i wouldn't be surprised i could see art house movies having that kind of disparity between a higher critic score and a lower audience score but i'm surprised for what amounts to a pretty standard horror film i mean they yeah. he hit all of the tropes i felt at times like i was watching aliens oh yeah totally you know? and so it, it it fell in line with that with that whole thing um yeah batman versus superman sitting in 29 with critics and 73 percent with viewers those viewers are lying to themselves <laughs> <laughs> i still haven't seen it but i mean i'm man i am so behind in the theater it's like I just watched Deadpool like a week ago. Really? Yeah. That was that's probably my guess when we get to the end of the year, that'll be the superhero movie of the year. I'm skeptical. I don't know, dude. Even... We got Suicide Squad coming up. Yeah, but DC's overall handling. I expect Civil mm-hmm. War will be good, but mm. I mean the, at this point Marvel has kind of one note that they keep banging on and DC wants to bang on that same note and they just don't so I'm skeptical about Suicide Squad. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for both of those, but yeah, I think Deadpool eh. will win the superhero movie because it's so original. It's super original, and uh, I would put it as my third favorite Marvel movie. I totally understand that. You're gonna have to guess the other two, but I'm we guessing, are not talking oh. <laughs> about Marvel. I was ready to guess. I'm guessing Guardians of the Galaxy is your number one, and number two would be maybe the first Iron Man. I think you nailed it. Yes. I think you done nailed it, this Levi. This is why we do this podcast. I think you done the nailed it. And I think that I think I'd have to put a, a, the a, original Avengers movie number four. 
This still still holds up. It, what what are we doing, Levi? <laughs> what are we doing? We're talking about comic books, which I think we're mimicking <laughs> mo- real movie fans. We're mimicking how Guillermo del Toro talks because if you hear him in any interview, he will talk about anything. If you get him on a tangent, good yeah. luck. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie it definitely had some good parts in it, and there was some major growing pains that went through it. Did you watch the director's cut, or did you watch the just original cut? I watched what I assume is the original cut. It didn't say okay. director's cut on it, and if I had known there had been a director's cut, I would have much preferred to watch that, I think, just knowing you how watch... Guillermo works. Yeah. Did you watch the um... – What in what venue did you watch it on? Because I rented Amazon. it on Amazon. Yeah, same here. Okay. Because on Amazon, the the well, I feel like the only one they had was the director's cut. Well, now so. I'm going to go look at my – let me pull up my receipts real quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's this why. Is, maybe that's why it's not so bad. Is because uh, this is the part of the podcast where we go through our receipts. <laughs> the receipt gassed. Purchases. Go ahead and talk I mean, while I pull it's this not, up. It's really not that important. I just was kind of curious because, uh, yeah, this movie. A lot of people are like. Well, it starts off really promising and then it devolves into something bad. I thought that the second half of the movie was better than the first half of the movie. I um, totally agree, especially. The, Once they get in the subway, it's like this is this has gotten way more interesting because they're like in the spaceship and you know nobody if they could wa- see people walking above them, but nobody could help them. You know, it's re- it's a lot more interesting to be than uh, you know all the stuff on the surface and the kind of convoluted love story and all that. Well, and the I think the f- the the filmog what's the word I'm looking for the cinematography the cinematography in the tunnels is much more you know the lighting yeah. is a much more interesting there's a lot more contrast and it, it's i think Guillermo del Toro's stronger suit when he gets down into the sewers i think trying to mm-hmm. make the surface interesting it, i think it's unsuccessful for the most part <laughs> i did watch the director's cut it appears okay. so yeah i think it's the only one that's available on amazon so uh yeah, it I, there was still a lot of I think there's some a lot of uh there's some a lot of um Guillermo del Toro isms that are starting to take shape. I think one of them is obviously insects. Number two the Kronos device. Creepy children. Creepy children loves for the sure. creepy quiet child. Yep, the creepy kids. Um another thing is more Catholic symbolism in this one. Oh yeah. Uh and the fourth one I would say is glow sticks, <laughs> because were there in, glow sticks in Kronos? Yeah, in Kronos, when they go to the factory, the LaGuardia factory, um, the little girl has glow sticks with oh, her. You're right. So glow sticks, keep an eye out for them. It's a del- <laughs> it's an official Del Toroism. <laughs> glow sticks that are shockingly bright. Yeah. Movies love these glow sticks that people use to like find their way through caves i've never seen a glow stick that good i would love to buy some please let me know where i can purchase them for my camping yeah i think that there's like i think that there's legit bright glow sticks out there There must be but i've never for all the camping i do maybe i don't spelunk so yeah you gotta gotta get spelunking glow sticks (laughs) maybe it's because it blinds your face at the same time as lighting your way this is glow cast (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> brought to you by the receipt cast. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Join the Bald Move Network. It was anyway Glowcast or your song about Sleepy Time that came before the cast. So oh, I was I was doing some singing before the podcast because I got nervous, <laughs> and I sing when I'm nervous. Uh, so <laughs> that I just one thing that I wrote down in my notes here is this movie is very very nineties. Oh, in a yeah. lot of ways. The hair. And Ooh. the hair, of course. I mean, Mira Servino's rocking the Rachel Bing hair uh, to to the nth degree. Um, but then also, I feel like glow sticks are kind of a 90s thing. Like, when I was a kid, like, glow sticks were, like, the coolest thing in the world. You know, you'd go camping with Boy Scouts or whatever, and you get a glow stick, you feel like you're king of the world, and then someone would smash it on a rock, and then they'd be like, don't touch it, it's toxic. Uh, and then it would somehow get on your clothes, and it was a big mess. But yeah, I really feel like glow sticks have lost favor, and I'm I'm ready for a glow stick revolution, man. Maybe maybe the whole rave culture really. Well, that's what I was doing. The mental I was working yeah. backwards from when we graduated high school, trying to remember when rave culture was a thing, and I think that yeah. was about 2000. Yeah, like late 90, like probably like 98 was probably like top so i i feel like maybe the glow stick thing with del toro it might wane as we enter the new millennium but it is something that i'm going to be keeping my eye out for uh i love the opening title sequence to this movie oh I thought yeah that it was really good it re- the use of the because it felt like if you've ever gone back into uh a library's collection of natural not specimens but you know the documentation mm-hmm. of yeah, that the those scientific works and documenting natural uh, the nature bugs and yeah. stuff. Yeah, it was really nice and the font fit really well. It yeah, and was, I love how it really flickers, man. It's almost like a bug fl- flittering its wings. You know, it really goes in and out. And I'm like, if I watch this in the theater, would I get like a epileptic seizure? Because it's pretty <laughs> pretty kinetic, man. It's, it lets uh, you know right off the bat, too. This is a movie yeah. with some bug shit. <laughs> They're going to be bugs. Uh, I was watching this with my wife, and she said that it really reminded her of the opening to Seven. Uh, or it, it, it just gave her like a Seven vibe. And Seven came out in 1995, so that was kind of a pre... pre. It was before this movie was made, so there could have been some like you know executive being like, hey, let's do like a Seven-esque thing with this. And... I feel like that kind of resonated through. I feel like there were kind of seven-esque notes throughout the entire movie. Do you have a seven deadly sins theory for this one? Uh, Let's see. We did gluttony for Kronos. This one, I mean, it's got to be wrath, right? You don't think it's maybe envy? The bugs, you know, mimicking people? I mean, no, because uh, maybe. I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch, but... It's a little bit of a stretch, but I like wrath because... Uh, because the the insects were bred to kill other insects, and then they turned on their creators. So it's like it's almost like they were created to kill themselves, and then eventually turned on their creators who forced them to kill themselves. Type of deal. I think between Blade, Hellboy, mm-hmm. and Pacific Rim, we're gonna have a lot of wrath. <laughs> no, Pacific Rim's totally lust. <laughs> Turn on the thrusters. Anyway, <laughs> this this movie, I love the opening title sequence, and it was, I it, it really was very um, striking, you know. Uh, and I really was really interested in this whole Stryker's disease that, or Stricker's disease, I think it w- is what it was. Mm-hmm. 
but it gets kind of glossed over. But it's like the whole reason for the movie is because these kids uh, had this fatal disease with no cure that was being um, uh, transmitted via cockroaches. And the, and then Mira Sorvino's character comes in and creates a new hybrid bug that kills all the cockroaches and saves uh, save the world. I mean, this is like an epidemic of massive proportions. So it's interesting to me that it becomes such a small part of the plot because from an impact perspective, every kid in New York has a debilitating disease. And if they're lucky, they walk with leg braces for the rest of their lives. It's like, this is the type of event that would resonate throughout history. Like, this is the type of thing that, like, the bubonic plague, like, it would be written in the history books. And it just gets, like, kind of glossed over because we really need to get to just making a bug. It it sets things up really nicely. And from after I read The Strain, I didn't watch the TV show, but the notion of contagion, viruses, epidemics... I think Guillermo del Toro is really interested in that as a horror source. And so it's a cool place to start, but because of the, you know, it's impressive as a guy who is so creative. And I think as we move through his filmography, we'll find that there are things he didn't need to expand on. It's, yeah, I feel like we've talked about in the past the the idea of the box. I think there's a TED talk from J.J. Abrams on it. The idea that you don't have to explain everything. Yes, this is actually a really impressive amount of restraint that he did not go more into strikers because it doesn't really relate carry on and later in the story. And I think it would have yeah. been a stronger story if there was some way that it came back up. Maybe the question of which do we prefer, this disease or this monster? Yeah, <laughs> something akin to that, but. I think it was actually, it, I agree that they do kind of gloss over it, but they really setting up that shot in the, the hospital with the nuns mm-hmm. at the start. I mean, there are just shots like that in this movie and they're not many, but there are some that are beautiful. Just a, yeah. a Tarsum Singh level, uh, aesthetic that is really nice. And I love this. I love the notion in the movie of the, we're never as smart as we think we are. My dad always loves to say that when it comes to things like dams and how we screw up rivers and, you know, we always are meddling with nature and it does bite us in the ass. And this is just this perfect, like blowback and it turned into a good horror movie. Maybe this is a subtle anti-vaxxer movie. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) What have we created? <laughs> no, but it's. I, I do kind of wish that they had figured out a way to wrap that back, and because it's so interesting to me that like there's this huge epidemic that's that's only targeting children, carried on the backs of cockroaches, and and yeah, it just kind of gets we they go through it, and then it's like three years later, and then it's done. <laughs> I have a really hard time buying though that they would be able to contain it to Manhattan yeah. Island if it's on well, cockroaches. Yeah. Especially, like, contain it to the most populous island in America. <laughs> There's no way that it gets off the island. Really? Like, a cockroach doesn't hop the Staten Island Ferry and get out, <laughs> you know? Or they just go out um, through the tunnels. Yeah, or any number of food trucks or, you know, giant shipping trucks or whatever. I mean, cockroaches are pretty good at making their way around, I assume. Um, 
I do. It is kind of nice. My wife used to live in Austin. She lived there for a, a short time, and cockroaches are like a real thing in Austin. And I feel like it's very luxurious living in the Pacific Northwest. You don't have to worry about cockroaches. Like, I've never seen a cockroach. Yeah, I don't know what I've done, but having lived uh, between Denver, Rhode Island, and Washington, I've never seen a cockroach. She says that, uh, like, you would go out at night and there'd be a bunch of smooshed cockroaches on the sidewalk. From, like, uh, women wearing high heels and <laughs> stabbing Ugh. the cockroaches into the sidewalk. Like, that is just, uh, it's a little, t- it's a little much, man. Um, but yeah, so, what is Mira Sorvino's character? I think it's Susan in this movie? You know, the acting in this movie was... Yeah, Susan. Perfectly berated, I thought. <laughs> I actually, I thought Mira Sorvino did a great job. The one... The actor that I could not stand was Jeremy Northam as Dr. Peter Mann, her husband. That guy, like, every time he talked, it just f- killed me. I was not a fan. And I thought Josh Brolin, like, killed it in this movie. I thought he was great. Oh, uh, Josh. Do you think at this point in his like his name was, his character's name was Josh. It's not <laughs> often that you see that in a movie, but every time I've heard of talk of uh actor's name matching their character it's usually because uh-huh. they don't do well with other names you know <laughs> like they you give them another name and they don't respond to it so you just uh-huh. use their normal name to get it uh-huh. out of them i don't something about it i just could never get over on top of the fact that this is the movie after goonies that yeah. you know in his age this is the movie between goonies and no country for old men as far as my yeah, history like, of Josh Brolin. Yeah, as far as relevance, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I thought he was really good. I thought the way they, they killed him was really good. Like, it was the type of thing where in this movie they show a lot. And it was nice to see a little bit of restraint where we don't actually see his body get ripped in half. We just see <laughs> him kind of realize that his legs are gone. And then he's like, oh, <laughs> As the as the life slowly drains from his eyes and as dread slowly creeps in, it was it was really well done. Um, but yeah, I just could not get over Jeremy Northam, man, and he hasn't been in anything else basically. <laughs> like I don't know <laughs> how he got IMDb in this movie. No, no, no the, the net man with Sandra Bullock. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, like Mira Sorvino's coming off an Oscar win into this movie. She won an Academy Award in 1995 for Best Supporting Actress. And she gets teamed up with this with this buffoon, Jeremy Northam. Uh, I mean, the guy just could not deliver a believable line in the whole movie, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overstepping here. I didn't ask what you thought about him. No, he's as a... I didn't... I just... I did not register much of the acting, honestly. The, uh-huh. The oh, what's his name? The Giancarlo Giannini, who played uh-huh. Manny. Uh, he was between him and Brolin. They were the only two characters that I recognized, and hmm. I only know Giannini from uh, the Bond series. Oh, that's where I know him from. Casino Quantum of Real. Solace. Yeah, the greatest Bond movie ever. <laughs> Quantum of Solace. Isn't he Inspector too, or am I mistaken on that? In that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Is he Inspector? Yes. Correct. Aha. Um 
Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I rec- I do. I recognize him from something. Um, and then, how can we forget Norman Reedus as the water treatment guy who pulls the bug out of the water? That was Norman Reedus. That was Norman Reedus, dude. Good lord, he did. Norman Reedus <laughs> putting on his most believable American accent. <laughs> it was. I, I really like that guy. That's the thing about this movie that I really enjoyed. Like, I feel like this movie, you know, it's got some. It's got some uh, shortcomings in that it, it you can watch a, you can watch an interview with Guillermo del Toro and he tells you this is a B movie script, <laughs> it's a B movie idea. So really tried to turn that into an A movie. I think sometimes they succeeded, sometimes they didn't. Uh, specifically with the dialogue, there was some dialogue that was just like, why, why <laughs> are you saying that? Like, I feel like he could really take a. Uh, Really take a course in show don't tell. The there's a scene that really sticks out to me, and it's with our good friend Jeremy Northam, Doctor Peter Mann, when he's in the metro locker room, and they kind of they break in there because the kids say that's where they found the bug, and and then they kind of see that like marbles are rolling down behind a thing, and then he tries to reach down into the thing, and he just narrates everything that he says. He's everything that happens to him. He's like, he drops his flashlight and he says, I dropped my flashlight. <laughs> then he like reaches back and he's like, I can't reach. Like we can see that you dropped your flashlight and that you can't reach. You don't have to say everything out loud. And I felt like that kind of happened throughout the movie. Uh, the show don't tell thing didn't really land very well. Is, um, is that one of those things that happens between right as you're writing? Uh huh. If you have difficulty visualizing, you put those lines in as a writer to explain the action because you cannot yeah. show, and they 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 just don't get removed when the scene comes up. It's, I guess it's a, I started yeah. that as a question and then I turned it into a statement. But well, I, it does. It's a type of stuff that should just be in the in the notes in the script. It should just say uh, he drops his flashlight, then he reaches behind the ledge and. And also, I mean, they didn't really show his face during those, so that might have been ADR'd in afterward. Um, yeah, but it's just that kind of stuff that got really clunky. And, and that's the, you know, it's, it, it got it kind of plotting in some some places. But I was happy to say that, like, once they got into the train car in the uh-huh. uh, in the subway, I was pretty interested in what was happening. And I was like... Because I was thinking to myself, this is how I kind of gauge whether or not I whether or not I'm enjoying a, a movie or a TV show. I'm like, could I turn this off right now? And would I feel like I'm missing anything? And at that point, when they were all trapped in that uh, in that train car deep under the city, I was like, I would, would not want to turn this off. I want to see how this thing hands up. So I, I feel like in that in that way, it was it was an effective effective movie. It's. I agree that that is the point where it's when they go down, when they finally move the locker and they descend yeah. that that's when, and maybe it's because the, what's the word I'm looking for? There's investment now You it in the, their chips are in the pot. I don't know what the hell analogy I'm looking for. That's when there's, that's <laughs> when the in. risk starts to occur. Yeah. Before that you see the, bugs kind of move around and i really want to talk about the effects of the bugs Mm -hmm. prior to that because i think they're i think it's a 
it's a little bit vampire-y and it's a fantastic uh-huh. effect. And I, it led me not to, to speculate wildly on what the monster was prior to that. But it mm. does, but it did not have the, they weren't really killing outside of their hive. And they even preface the whole thing, uh, with her explaining how the bugs work in yeah. advance. They're territorial, so they only attack near their nest. When they do, they try and stun and take you to a pantry. Uh-huh. Which was both felt a little bit on the nose, at the same time was a, was great foreshadowing. Yeah, I feel like it's very similar to what Edgar Wright does in his movies. It's like at the beginning of the movie, they're going to explain to you what the rest of the movie is. And having gone through the catalog of Edgar Wright, when Mira Servito starts to explain that, I'm like, okay, so this is the rest of the movie. <laughs> and it makes sense. I mean, that, that type of foreshadowing, I feel like, is really good because it sets up the audience to have a better understanding. But, like, in that explaining thing, maybe if, instead of explaining that you dropped your flashlight and that we because we because we saw you drop your flashlight, you don't have to explain it. Maybe instead of doing that, they should have been a little bit more explicit about now we're in the pantry. You know, they could have been something that, like, we could see her revelations, and then I think it would have helped us, uh, kind of lean on her expertise because, like, when we're in the in the subway car and the cop starts bleeding. And then she turns and she goes, the blood, they're, they're, they want the blood. It's driving them crazy. Like, how would she know that? Like, that is a, that was a huge jump for me. But like, if it was somehow tied a little bit more cohesively to, if she tied her bug expertise to her experiences a little bit more cohesively, I think it would have worked a little bit better. Because I had to explain that to myself. I was like, well, that doesn't make much sense that she she would know that the, they're after the blood. And I was like, well, she did create these bugs, so maybe there's something that she knew that they want blood. But it's a weird thing. I, I mean, cause unless, unless she bred them with mosquitoes, I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Yeah, it's not something you translate to bugs. You know, it, yeah. it's an obvious one with sharks. Yeah, I was like, oh, smart, yeah. sharks spell the blood. Whether or not it's true Jurassic Park and the whole, oh, the dinosaur sees movement at this point uh-huh. has been ingrained. But the blood did seem a little bit of a stretch. But they are super bugs, so. It, w- it could have been explained so simply, though, if she just said, we bred cockroaches with mantids and mosquitoes. And then they would have had the bloodlust, and then it could have been easily explained. Maybe mantids have bloodlust. Maybe they do. They do. <laughs> Mantids do eat anything that they can eat. That's their whole. That's their whole deal. I mean, we're t- we're 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 splitting hairs here. We're talking about a movie where there's human-sized insects because they evolved late uh, lungs because they were because <laughs> they had a rapid life cycle. So they were. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the? Did you were you expecting full-size bugs when you first see them? Their silhouette is very human yeah and even when the kid sees them you really see that they play well with the lighting on the face so the face looks kind of surreal but still human i was not expecting it to just be oh nope just giant giant bug with (laughs) a a a mask yeah like and it looked like they were wearing trench coaches trench coats (laughs) uh maybe they i don't think they were i think that was just like their wings yeah those wings folded back um yeah i wasn't i was expecting something a little bit more of like a human insect hybrid kind of like the fly yeah 
very very much like that but um yeah because i mean there's certain there's a little bit of pseudoscience in here that really kind of rubs me the wrong way specifically that they created bugs that had a really short generational life cycle and therefore they were able to evolve quickly over time and i'm like there are so many bugs that have a short generational life cycle and they're not turning into humans, you know. Uh, and maybe it's just because because these are. The, I mean, it can be explained away that these are the super bugs, and therefore they have the ability to evolve. But it's like it's not unique in the insect world to have a very short generational cycle. As Doctor Northam says, evolution likes to keep things alive. <laughs> that was the that was a really dumb line. I'm sorry. Evolution does not like to keep things alive. That's what evolution is: is things dying. Because they, because they're not fit to survive. Well, then Officer Leonard also says there's some weird <laughs> shit here, lots of it. That was that was believable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I hated that line so much. The evolution evolution like wants to survive. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's a weird. This is post Jurassic it's Park post-Jurassic too. Park. So you can't just drop a line like that and not be hinting at yeah. life finds a way. Totally. We got it. Nice try. Well, it's very Jurassic Park in that, like, they only released the females and all this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if they only released the females and they had a really short generational life cycle, the things should have died pretty quickly. I mean, whatever. We could we could debate the science of life-size bugs as much as we want. Well, but I we're going to we find out hairs. pretty quick because this does a little bit smell of what they've been doing with mosquitoes lately in... Uh, countries where there are a lot of outbreaks. Oh yeah, via, I Hilarious. I stopped and mm-hmm. thought partway through the movie. I'm like, this is what we're doing with the mosquitoes. Oh no, they will <laughs> have the bloodlust. They will. They'll be giant life size mosquito vampires, <laughs> ready to suck your blood. Um. <laughs> so yeah, there's obviously some religious symbolism as well in this one. First of all, the bug is called the Judas breed, uh, and. There's, I feel like there was a lot of really interesting, you know, symbolism. There's also the it was like a chapel or something, and that that was a front for a sweatshop. Um, it had the big Jesus saves cross out front, um, and the Chinese lady calling the bugs the dark angels. Yep, the dark angels. Also, that was the weird. That was a really weird line when. Uh, it's just more of this doctor. <laughs> I guess maybe they just gave the doctor like all of the bad lines. And that's why I hated him so much. But there's there's a thing where Jer- Jeremy Northam's character walks up, and there's the old lady on the gurney, and he tries to talk to her. And Josh Brolin goes, "She doesn't speak English." And then the <laughs> and then he turns to like the only Asian guy there, and he's like, "Can you say it, or why don't you say it to her?" And I just really wanted that guy to be like, "I don't speak Chinese." <laughs> Like what the hell, man? Uh, like it was a little bit of of a short of too short a shortcut to just turn to the only <laughs> Asian guy there and be like, "Well, you obviously speak Chinese, so why don't you say something to her?" Uh, yeah, um, maybe maybe they just gave this guy all the dumbest lines in the movie. That's why I hate him so much. Well, it's it's a evolutionary tactic in movies where if mm-hmm. you give all the dumb lines to one guy, everybody else gets to live. <laughs> Oh, oh, but he doesn't die. The Judas script, oh. I like to call it. <laughs> and awesome. he doesn't. Yeah, let's yeah. 
for a second, can we talk about some deaths? I'd like to to sure. go through the children dying. Yes, the two kids. Oh my god! Can I, I, let's just talk about the two kids to begin with. <laughs> okay, these because two these entrepreneurs are incredible. <laughs> these are incredible characters. You've not seen a character like this before. I was so I was so excited about these kids. They're like two like rough street kids, but they're super nerdy, and they go out and catch bugs for. Pocket chains, basically. And they're bargaining with the entomologist. Yeah, what the hell is her problem, by the way? $10? <laughs> really? Up from 5 5 was your initial offer? You like, know, what the hell? She's totally lowballing these kids. They're, they're, these are budding scientists. See, there's a scientist of tomorrow, and you're, and you're lowballing them? Like, give them a 20 at least. Anyway. Do you remember? Sorry. It's the 90s, though. I mean, a, Dude, a dollar not- bought you a gallon of gas. Dude, inflation is not has not gone up that much <laughs> since the nineties. I'm just saying, like, throw the kids a bone here. They're obviously outliers. Like, they're entrepreneurs. They're street smart, and they're really into insects. And they got they got freaking balls of steel, dude. Like, these kids are climbing down the dregs of of the subway system, like sl- slopping through the slime and slicing up egg sacs and stuff. Uh yeah, but uh, th- this is actually the largest note that I've ever written. Um, <laughs> Just indirect in literal sides, you mean? No, I wrote "Oh shit!" <laughs> when the kids died. I was like, that raised the stakes a whole bunch. <laughs> like, God, man, and brutal, brutal. Know, just like, for these kids and just blood everywhere. That was Liz had checked out before this, and yeah. she was in the vicinity of the TV so she could listen to it. <laughs> It's, her eyes were huge. The sound effects of this yeah. death was enough to give her pause. Oh, man. Yeah, those kids dying was... I mean, it was an amazing device because, first of all, kids never die in movies. <laughs> Second of all, I was I was very endeared to these two characters, obviously. I thought that they were really cool kids. And then all of a sudden, they just freaking eat it. Like, I was expecting, you know, some kind of jump scare, maybe... Maybe they don't want to, uh, maybe the bugs don't want to kill them for some reason or whatnot, but they just got straight up slaughtered by a giant insect, and it was crazy. <laughs> like, this is the stuff of nightmares for children. <laughs> I guess it's a rated R movie, so. I mean, this is the stuff, I'll give it to those kids. Bugs are probably the creepiest horror movie thing you can do that will kind of yeah. screw me up. Fire in the Sky, I saw when I was in kindergarten, so that one. I can't go back. Even what is that aliens. about? It's an, I don't even know what that it's is. It's an alien abduction movie. My neighbor and his dad, we went when I was in kindergarten, and it's one of those alien movies that starts with, this is based on a true story. So when you're five, that means this is a true story. All of yeah. it is factual. <laughs> yep, and it's yep. about this guy getting abducted in, I think, the Pacific Northwest on like a logging road. Mm-hmm. And that haunted me my entire childhood. And I still <laughs> won't watch that movie again. But other alien movies don't spook me. Bugs. Even Men in Black, the Edgar mm. suit bug, creeps me out. That's super duper, duper, super. Just something about the mandibles on their face. <laughs> I just come unglued. Yeah, I don't have any visceral reaction to movie bugs, to fictional insects. But I get all weirded out when I watch like a nature documentary about real bugs. <laughs> That's when I'm like, I start like feeling the little creepy crawlies on the back of my neck, and I'm like, I can't watch this. I can't, 
can't do it. But movie bugs, I've always been endeared to, and I think it probably goes all the way back to Auntie in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> um, that was a very affecting scene for me as a child. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> Came out in 1991, I think. Um, there's that scene where the scorpion kills Auntie, and that scorpion freaked me the shit out when I was a kid. Um but yeah, I never got I never got the total creepy crawly thing from this movie, except for that final scene in the nest at the very end when they all start flying out of their little egg sacks. That was when I was like, "This is pretty disgusting." I at that point, I could not detach from the aliens feel of this movie. From oh, yeah. the we get, we're saving the kid and. Now it's the uh, Mia Servino facing off with the, in this instance, the king. But the only uh-huh. line I heard in my head was Sigourney Weaver shouting, get away from her, you bitch. Yep, totally. Uh, and then the guy blowing up the hive like she yeah. does, Sigourney Weaver does with the grenades as she like waltzes her way away from the queen. Dude, is this just, this is just aliens. It this really is just aliens. I think the time, at, at the point that they enter the the train car it is aliens uh-huh. at that point <laughs> i uh see i was getting a really strong prometheus vibe from this which is the same family like, yeah it was those... the thing of everybody crawling in and you know you could say what you want about prometheus i actually really liked prometheus um and one of the reasons why is because of the connection that was made by guillermo del toro between that movie and uh, mountains of madness the lovecraftian novella um and the things that initially really bothered me about Prometheus actually, uh, well, I thought about it more, actually made me like it better. In that, in that movie, everybody's greatest strength is their downfall. Like the guy who's the navigator can't fi- find his way through the cave. The guy who likes the who's the uh, animal expert like takes off his mask and tries to touch a, a random alien animal that they have no idea what it is. Uh, the pilot. Uh, he crashes his ship to save everybody. Like it, it, the the it's there's something about the environment and that little and that black goo that like turns everybody's greatest strength into their greatest weakness, which is something that's really interesting. And I felt a little bit like we were going there in this movie, but then it just kind of turned into a we're all stuck in here and we're all really different, weird people. But there's nothing that really matters because we're all gonna die. Well, and it like, and that's the '90s too. Coming, yeah. I think the sense of st- we talk about the transition that began with uh, pulp fiction and storytelling. I think that a lot of stuff, especially from earlier than the '90s, you think about a lot of the more popular movies. The plots can be generally fairly similar and predictable. Yeah, yeah. And you can call a lot of the 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 action sequence is about to to come up because this one too, you know, the, Oh, he's going to make everybody's on a suicide mission. Of course, the black cop is going to bite it, but he's going to go down swinging to draw the bugs away because he's bleeding. Mm -hmm. Um, Also rubbing bug guts on you cannot be sanitary. No way. Dude, that guy was going to lose the leg regardless. (laughs) That leg was done for. That was like a game green infection waiting to happen. (laughs) Ooh. yeah josh brolin uh, bites it going to get help that one was <laughs> seemed pretty I, obvious yeah it seems super obvious like 
but because it was like it was a horror trope at that point like we're trapped you go find help you'll be fine just go back the way that we came it's a left a right and two lefts and then right at the fork yeah when you watch him write it on his hand and at some point you realize he's not getting it you just consign him he's dead goodbye josh brolin josh as we call him in this movie yeah and and also like they could have like maybe problem solved for like two more minutes before they told him to leave <laughs> like the scaffolding falls down and they're not like hey let's try to rebuild the scaffolding it's actually really easy to rebuild scaffolding <laughs> uh no let's not do that let's just send that guy out by himself uh and, and we'll be fine and we'll just stay down here um you know, yeah, it all was kind of convoluted how they all ended up in the bottom of the subway system. Uh, but it was, uh, I would say it's, it was effective. Uh, like I said, once they got into that train car, I was i was on board. I was ready to go. Um, one of the things, you were talking about story uh, going through the 90s and kind of how all stories are the same. The Atlantic uh, just recently published an article. They published it on January 1st, 2016 called All Stories Are the Same. And it kind of breaks down this concept that it's all the same, that every story is the same. So I think it'd be really interesting if we can uh, try to apply this to all of the movies we watch and see if if they if they break this mold or not. Um, but this is the motif that continually recurs through stories. Here it is, Levi. All right. It's the journey into the woods to find the dark but life-giving secret within. And that's it. I think. Yep. They just sum it up with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's... obviously the woods can become a metaphor, but this is absolutely this movie. Because these bugs are the life-giving... They gave life to all the kids who were suffering from this disease. Like, they saved everybody who, is, who had this Stricker's disease. And yet they are also this, this dark secret in that they are also <laughs> monstrous things. And they have to go deep into this... Uh, you know, deep into the caverns of New York City in order to battle them. Like, I feel like this lines up pretty well with that. Yeah, it's... I'm thinking back now to Kronos mm-hmm. and whether that one fits. Yeah. Well, the, absolutely, man. What The dark but life-giving secret is vampirism. Yes. Where's the, So where's the woods? Is that simply his interaction? Is that the LaGuardia... Yeah, I mean, that LaGuardia factory, factory is definitely a weird place. And also, I think that it could be much more metaphorical than that, in that his journey to discover that he's a vampire is him going into the woods. Because um, he gets deeper and deeper than he realizes he can ever find his way out. That seems... It's similar to a fortune cookie. They made that statement <laughs> so vague because there's yeah. no there's no discussion of the protagonist especially and that's uh-huh. sort of central to every story is yep. and a good story versus a bad story. The reason that Hunger Games is good is because of Katniss Everdeen's character and mm-hmm. the reason that whoever wrote that I think she lucked out by striking that character. Harry Potter is really good because of Harry Potter and all of the characters that surround him. That's what makes that yep. so compelling for as long as that story went on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking of, you know, sort of popular, but, but also film at the series. same time, there was the whole thing between, you know, Harry and, and Voldemort where it was like, you know, did, did I, I didn't pay that much attention to it, but wasn't Harry like one of the Horcruxes or wasn't yes. there something? Spoiler. Yeah. He's yeah. one of the, 
he has he shares a part of the soul and that's what makes harry potter yeah. such a a profoundly good story even though yeah. it's written for children is that the character work is so fascinating the reason right i but, think the hunger game dark but life-giving secret is that he is evil he is, he is the dark evil. yes yeah, but yeah he yeah. also but it's also the source of his power but you've just summed up seven books worth of material yeah, that but that, I mean, I, I just think it's really interesting how how well it does apply. Like even something like Star Wars, like the Force is a dark but life giving secret. Like it has the light side and the dark side. Um, yeah, it's, and the galaxy it's is the forest. Yeah, or you know, it's, I think it's just that it's just that journey into the unknown. That's the that's the other aspect of it that makes it interesting. Yeah. Is, because when we can go on that journey with the protagonist, we go on the journey into the unknown, we get to discover it with them, and then that helps us flesh out the world for ourselves. It makes a story interesting. It's nice. I think that that was the Atlantic they wrote yeah. that. I think that's a yep. really nice – what they've done is it's it's the central mechanic to all stories, really. And they've left yeah. – it's like giving somebody a Dungeons & Dragons book. All Dungeons <laughs> & Dragons yeah. stories yeah. are – the same in the sense that they're all bar- using the same mechanics, but it's the characters that differentiate every story. And yeah. to roll it into, I was listening to an interview with Guillermo del Toro, and his his central theme, I think, in all of his movies, and it's something to watch for, is that he questions what makes us human. And his mm-hmm. answer is always, and these are his words, his answer is always, we have a choice. Yeah. And I think we see that in this, in the how people respond to the threat at the end. Everybody responds differently and everybody meets a different end. Mm-hmm. Um, in Kronos, the grandfather absolutely makes a choice in the end to destroy the artifact and to, yep. you know, take his death into his own hands, essentially. Yep. And I think we'll find when we get to Blade as silly as the the topic is of blade <laughs> as a character blade yeah. does have a very serious series of choices right. that he makes yeah. that distinguishes him the the conversation yeah. he's a vampire but it makes him human because he decides to be a vampire hunter yeah um it he, he decides not to give into that monstrous side yeah totally that's interesting yeah so we should definitely follow that motif as well speaking of motifs and themes mm-hmm. something I think we could really keep an eye out for as we go forward and discuss for the mimic is water. Del Toro loves mm. water. And I think he thinks it's creepy because if you look <laughs> at, and I'm working a little bit backwards on this, but Pacific Rim, especially, you know, the ocean is the scary source yeah. of the danger. And in this movie, the reason it caught my eye was I thought it was blatantly stormy New York the whole time. Oh, yeah. Is a torrential downpour the whole time. <laughs> the whole movie over course yeah. of days. Mm-hmm. But then we get into the the sewer system or into the subway, and the subway is of course just drenched. And uh-huh. then with the water filtration plant too. Yeah, I think there are just these moments where water is present, and it's. I I wonder if it's creepy because it slows people down because. In the dark, water is slow. It's also, if we go back to the the dark but life-giving uh, force, force yep. uh, water is absolutely that Yeah, in every sense of the way. Totally. Um, I think it's something to watch for. I think it's fascinating. And it has religious connotations. 
Oh, yeah. Holy water. Yeah. And also things like the story of Jesus walking on water. And yeah, there's a lot of religious connotations. Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure about that, but I, I want to keep my eye on it, uh, like you say, because um, we we mentioned this before. I think we mentioned this when we were talking about the Hateful Eight, uh, because there was that snowstorm outside, and it's something that harkens back to Kurosawa. Kurosawa did this a lot in film, is that he would always have some kind of weather event happening behind people, whether it was a windstorm or a snowstorm or a rainstorm, and that way, when you had frame where you're able to frame up people inside a building you could look outside and there would be movement so you could have stillness within the building but there would still be kinetic movement throughout the scene and i was wondering if this was along those same lines that maybe del toro is channeling that kurosawa sensibility and having it be torrential natural force because it is noticeably <laughs> stormy for days and days and days i thought about um, the kurosawa reference too and it just seemed at some point i thought wow he really took that lesson too literally he <laughs> yeah. did not understand the subtlety that is involved yes. with changing weather and time of day and and it's new york yeah. weather doesn't have to be your motion no you could have it, all sorts of things going on outside i thought it was weird yeah totally you got people walking around i mean i thought it was weird because you know living in seattle like it's it's pretty rainy here but even we don't get rain like that <laughs> For days, like that was that abandoned subway would have been flooded. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, so but that's something that's that's another thing we should definitely look out for as as Del Toroism is is the water motif. Um, Let's see. Let's talk about the ending though, because I think that this is something that might affect the viewers of this movie. Because I kind of thought the ending of this movie was bullshit. Absolutely. Um, and Del Toro also has been vocal about how he, he did not want the ending of the movie to be this way. But he was really pressured into it. Because this is his first Hollywood movie. This is his first studio film. So he's really going through a learning ground of how to uh, of how to make a movie in Hollywood. He's, he's, he's learning how to navigate that very, very complex uh, network. And one of the things that he said... Uh, that he did on this movie that he never did on any other movie ever again is he had a second unit, which is a, it's a crew that goes out and shoots kind of like B roll films. So like, you know, in a movie, uh, where they have a person transition from one city to another city, like they're going from New York to Boston, you might send the secondary unit out to just take some, get some shots of the car so that you can put a montage over it or whatever. So it's really kind of the, the garbage shoots that don't really have any of the actors in it. Uh, they usually put that off to a second unit. But James Cameron has a great quote about second units. It's that it's bad if the second unit comes back with bad footage, and it's even worse if the second unit comes back with good footage. <laughs> because then the studio heads are like, why are we paying this director so much? We could just use the second unit to shoot everything. It's way cheaper. Um, so one of the things he did in the director's cut is he basically removed all the second unit footage. And after this movie, Del Toro says that he has never had a second unit ever again on a movie. He shoots everything uh, himself. So now I wonder uh, what was crew. cut. What did we, what were the shots yeah. that we missed? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but then the other thing is that he said the ending of this movie, he just, he had a completely different vision for it. And I feel like there's a major hanging Chad 
in this movie, and that's the pregnancy. Yeah, I thought it was a bug baby, for sure. Yeah, as soon as that bug bit her on the hand and then she turned up pregnant, I knew yeah. the ending of this film was going to be dun 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 bug yeah, baby bug baby like totally like and that's that was another thing that linked it to prometheus i was like oh she's pregnant uh-oh oh god the way prometheus handles it though that's yeah. one of the squirmier scenes i've ever seen it's super squirmy but pretty damn good too <laughs> um yeah but i was like yeah i mean i wasn't a big fan of this kid either was his name chewy yeah, well, that's what he called him, even though uh-huh. I, because of the baby, I tend to watch things on lower volume, so I've started yeah. putting the uh, which, the closed caption on, uh-huh. just so I don't miss anything, and yep. it's Chewy, C-H-U-Y. Okay. So it's more like Chewy. Chewy. All right, well, <laughs> um, didn't have like a lot of uh, affection for this kid. Yeah, I thought he might secretly be like part bug, you know, in the if they were going to the direction or that he'd be totally cool with the bugs because he could speak to them. But there's something about using the (laughs) child on the spectrum as this weird medium. This kid's absolutely autistic. It feels weird. It's really as a horror trope. Feels uh, exploit a little exploitative. It's a little exploitative, but I I think you could easily say that Danny from The Shining is on the spectrum. Um, I mean, I feel like it's I don't feel like it's untreaded water, but the way that they, I don't know, the way that they, like his his own curiosity and all this stuff, and then he ends up being kind of this like communicator with the bugs, and they don't kill him because he can click like them. It was just. It was so weird to me, and then... <sighs> but it doesn't unfold into anything, which is weird. Yeah, it, it doesn't just makes unfold into anything. He's just a... He's a prop. Yeah. <laughs> he's a prop that allows uh, Mira Sorvino's character to like have something to do aside from save herself. Which, for me, I was like, that's probably enough. Also, he's a prop to get the old guy into the subway system... Which doesn't matter at all. Why does he need to be <laughs> down there? There's no reason for it. Like... <laughs> He like he literally just goes down there, stumbles around, and then gets brutally murdered right in front of his. Uh, I'm assuming grandson. I was assuming grandson. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the sense that I got. Yeah, so this guy just walks around, gets brutally murdered in front of his grandson, and that's it. That's that was the only thing. So like, I feel like you could have cut out the whole thing with the clicker and the shoe shine guy. That whole part did not need to be in the movie. Yep. You but, could uh, pull the whole thing out and there would yep. still be the same movie. It would be the exact same movie. There's There was nothing that they contributed. See, now, if she wasn't pregnant, then I could understand the ending yeah. as, oh, they get their kid yeah. out of this horrific totally. event. Mm-hmm. But she's pregnant with what well, we can presume a bug baby, even though there's absolutely zero... <laughs> To yeah. to give that notion, and what's his name? And Peter Doctor North oh, that was that lived, which that was, was also a huge bullshit moment to me. Yeah, that hey, there's no super blown up fucking way that that guy survived that. <laughs> well, he li- he literally is the source of the <laughs> flame. He is the source of the explosion, and he survives. He jumps into the water and makes it out unscathed, not a hair singed on his dumb, stupid head. <laughs> Oh, 
But to be honest, you wanted him dead from the beginning of yes, the movie. I wanted him dead the whole time. Like, I'll literally take any other character that died <laughs> to replace him. I don't care about this guy at all. Not to mention, it's way more badass if you go out blowing yourself up. Yeah. That's way cooler. Like, they made the whole thing dumber because he, because he didn't do any self-sacrifice. I would have preferred Leonard, the hardened street cop. Yeah, like beat. staying behind, you know? That would have been great. Yeah, like he gets he gets stayed he like you know he's he's hobbled, he's in the middle of the nest and like his last heroic action is blowing up the nest and and ridding the earth of these things. That would have been much better. <laughs> yeah, I I'm sw- I I swear man, I didn't see any real reason either for Jeremy Northam to be in this movie at all. <laughs> there was no reason for it. Like Mira Sorvino's character comes in and, so- and saves the day. Like, Josh Brolin could have easily just done all that stuff by himself. He didn't have to have Jeremy Dortham walking around with him. So here's um, the, the bald move edit. We remove Manny, Grandpa Manny, yep. and yep. the kid, Chewie, yep. and yep. Dr. Peter Mann. Yeah. And you still have a movie. You still have a movie, and you still have, like, an awesome trio of Josh Brolin, of Charles S. Dutton as Leonard the Cop, and Mira Sorvino. Like that's a badass trio. You don't need to clutter it up with everybody else. Um, I could only assume that this was all studio meddling, <laughs> and it, that they they wanted a grandpa in here. That was that's definitely the studio. <laughs> that's the nice thing with having Kronos as our baseline for all this. Yeah. Is Kronos is really an unmeddled movie, I think, yeah. and it sh- no, totally. it shows because it has its weird that. The lack of explanation for LaGuardia and absolutely yeah. what's going on with him and Ron Perlman mm-hmm. is odd, but it works and it feels more streamlined. There's not more characters in that movie than absolutely needed to be. <laughs> and so I think we can yeah. carry that. I think it will be a fun one to watch, especially as we get to the balance of and I wonder if this is, you know, we have our Guillermo del Toro watch coming up, uh-huh. uh, our segment. But yep. I wonder if that is part of what makes him such a sporadic director in terms of what mm. he's currently on. Because of some a movie like this, where he was meddled with so much yeah. that he just, his, uh, his, his filter, he just, there's only so much he'll take before he'll kind of bail and studios also not just not to that he's probably going to yeah but he's also proven himself now with financially which is you know good for him because he it gives him the freedom that's that's the that's the language that the studio speaks um is revenue so um yeah i mean it's an interesting journey that he's been on because these were his first two movies his first one was done in 1993 and it was a super indie film he basically just did it all by the seat of his pants and then four years later he gets his shot at making a studio film presumably off of the back of the success of chronos and it was very successful especially from a critical standpoint um but then he gets really meddled with the studio and then he heads back and he does the devil's backbone which is with the next movie that we're going to watch and the devil's backbone is uh, self-described by by Guillermo del Toro as his favorite movie that he's made. So that makes me really excited to watch it. The second thing that makes me really excited to watch it is that just like Mimic and just like Kronos, I have no idea what it's about. I'm going to go in completely blind. And it is so great to go into movies like this. Like, not even a trailer. 
just I have no idea what it's about. I know what the title is, and that's it. Based on um, the cover, I think we're gonna get another creepy child. <laughs> creepy kid number three. <laughs> uh, also, just want to throw this out there, Levi. Uh, Mimic two came out in two thousand one, <laughs> and uh, Mimic Mia, three. Did Mia Servino reprise her role as no. Doctor Susan Tyler? Nope. Trying to pull There's this up on IMDb. a bunch of people that I've never heard of. This one really went the. Uh, Really went the uh, the B movie route, I believe. Um, and then Mimic Three Sentinel came out in two thousand three. <laughs> uh, just a quick quick uh, synopsis: A man enclosed in a plastic bubble, <laughs> his sister and their best friend must defend an apartment complex from the mutant Judas breed insects. Just in case you were, I I wondered throughout the movie. Through Mimic, the first one uh-huh. here, the director's cut, what Remy's job was. Mimic 2, I think, stars Remy. Yeah. Which is great. I really, I hope they get into her backstory. I want to know what what she was doing oh. in every scene. There was no yeah, explanation like, who she, she works around. for. There's no reason. She plays in a band. That's the only character development we got. She, <laughs> she knew a guy in a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She knows where to find the kids. I think that Mira Servino's character says, "Remy, go find those kids." Uh, I really. She's, just a, she's a she's a street urchin with a heart of gold. <laughs> IMDb really wants to suggest if you like Mimic, the Species movies. <laughs> Anyways, I think I think this has devolved <laughs> enough that we can end it. But we do want to point you to the forums, folks. So uh, be a part of the conversation. We will have a Devil's Backbone thread on the forums. Uh, love, I love the forums, man. I definitely read everything that's on there. And on the Mimic forums, if you go there right now, Davey Mack posted a link um, with some interesting quotes and stories from the audio commentary that Del Toro made for the Blu-ray of Mimic. So there's some really interesting stuff in there, including a cop, uh, uh, a version of the movie that was written by Steven Soderbergh. So go check that out. It's really interesting. Uh, forums.ballmove.com be a part of the conversation there you can also send us an email at directpodcast at gmail.com and we will read it on the podcast so send us an email and if you haven't done so already please rate and review us on iTunes that's how iTunes decides uh, how they rank their stuff and put it in front of more eyes if it gets more ratings uh, it gets the show out to more people that's that's the algorithm. So let's exploit the algorithm. <laughs> Go rate and review us on iTunes. And until next time, we will be watching uh, The Devil's Backbone. Until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut. <laughs>